When I first got into Jungian psychology, one of the first things I discovered was this idea of the shadow. And of course, when you first find the shadow, immediately what you want to do, especially if you're a young man like me, is to integrate it as fast as humanly possible and basically upgrade yourself, upgrade your consciousness so that you can take on the world. But uh, lo and behold, it doesn't actually work like that. I kind of found out after a little while and a lot of the resources that I found online weren't particularly useful. They were quite um, woo-woo, you could say. So what Steve and I have done, Steve, first of all, say hello. Hi, everyone. Nice to be back. Fantastic. What Steve and I have done is to is to fill that hole, if you like, to take a look and go on. Well, there aren't really many resources out there regarding the Jungian shadow. And Steve has 40 plus years of clinical experience. So let's do it. Let's create something that's going to fill that hole and give people the resources that they truly need to, first of all, understand the shadow and then second of all, integrate it later on down the line. So if you click the link in the description down below, you'll be taken to a page which gives you a completely free, no strings attached guide to integrating the shadow. But if you don't want to do that, of course, and instead you want to listen on the go or listen as you look in front of your TV as to how you can do this properly, we are here to serve you. So first of all, Steve, what is the shadow? Like we did with the anima, 30 seconds, what is the shadow? <laughs> it's the first problem you're going to encounter when you work in depth psychology. It's not the most important. We discussed that provisionally, or at least in, in the beginning last time on the anima. But the shadow is the first real problem that most people, as I say, will encounter when they start to work on themselves. Uh, it's a multi-layered construct. And we have to navigate our way through, as you say, to get ourselves away from the woo-woo of the internet and the misunderstandings that have been propagated about this as a concept. Um, the PDF that we produced, I think, will be very, very helpful. We should probably begin with this by defining, first of all, what the shadow actually is. Because the way I came to understand the shadow, and this might have been the case with you too, Steve, I've absolutely no idea what it was like, perhaps the generation earlier, but it's the, the evil Adolf Hitler inside of all of us. And as, as we sit there, we think that we're good people, but really behind us is Adolf yeah. Hitler and he's yelling in our ears going, you need to kill everybody. And so that, that's what I thought. And I thought um, the, the other general misconception right. is um, you cannot be a masculine man without integrating your shadow, which, which as a first principle is like, what does that even mean? And it means something like become dangerous. It's an idea I've heard all over the place. But I guess to sort of clear that up, what is the shadow? Okay, well, just to go back to your first comment, uh, back in my generation, many, many decades ago, the popular cultural representation mm. was uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, and that's useful in the sense that it, it's such an exaggeration that it allows you to, to start with that and then work back in practical terms to, to what it really is. The problem with um, Stevenson's character uh, mm. Dr. Jekyll is that he's too one-sidedly good and he tries to expunge completely all of the negative characteristics and traits um, that the human personality has, just get shut of them. And of course what he does is just create the ultimate for him, neurosis, which is a division between this very, mm. very good man and his opposite. When he tries to destroy Mr. Hyde, he can't do that without also destroying himself because it's a continuous structure. And that's the basic, really valuable message that you cannot eliminate the shadow because it is part of you. It is your personal shadow. If we're addressing it 
as a personal mm. psychological structure at this this point of the video. Essentially, then, from the the, the Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, perspective, it's everything that you would reject about yourself, everything which offends you morally, uh, all of your inferior qualities, characteristics, uh, traits, um, instincts, mm -hmm. everything like that that should be pushed away. And this has carried over. It's not just actually uh, in people of my generation, 1960s and 70s, um, when I grew up. Um, it's something which has been hanging around the atmosphere, if you like, of, of our culture, probably for the whole of the Christian era. The separation, for example, between Christ and Satan, mm -hmm. which is another polarity. Polarities are very, very dangerous things because they're so extreme when taken to the extreme of that bandwidth. So you have to be very, very careful about being too one-sided because you automatically produce the opposite in compensation for whichever way that you go. In other words, if you try to be too good, yeah. you will create evil in yourself to compensate that too one-sided approach. The way that religion normally deals with that is to project the darkness onto other people or to a convenient construct. And I know I'm being controversial That's by fine. saying it's a construct rather than literal, but the, the notion of Satan as opposed to Christ is a very uh, convenient, and I'll say it, psychological construct upon which to project the shadow, the darkness within ourselves. Uh, in everyday life, we project this onto other people, people that we know, uh, people that we apparently dislike for no apparent reason, uh, people we dislike because they're too like us in a negative way. So projection of uh, this darkness onto the other is a normal way of reducing tension within ourselves. And it works for a while, but it also generates more internal anxiety, which mm -hmm. then attacks us indirectly and has to be dealt with then. So that's, that's the most basic version of the shadow, if you like. This construct of extreme good versus extreme bad, but then it's a bandwidth and you have all the different layers or separations between those two poles. Mm. So it's like Newton's third law, I guess, as a general metaphor. It's like for, equal, for every yeah. action, he says there is an equal and opposite reaction. So there is you with your attitude going about the world and sitting behind you within the shadow. And of course, we'll break down the actual psychodynamics of what makes up the shadow yeah. as well in just a moment. That is there yeah. as an equal and opposite balancing force to who you yes. are. So I'm going to show a diagram on the screen right now. And in the middle there, this, this is basically the makeup of consciousness itself. So you've got here the field of consciousness and in the very, very middle, there is the ego. And of course, we generally understand, of course, that the ego is what we usually identify as ourselves. But of course, there are all these other little circles sitting around the ego. And what are these things? Well, they are complexes. The circle sitting on top of the ego is an ego identified complex. And then you've got ones just around the ego within the field of consciousness itself. And these are ego aligned complexes. And then you've got ego unaligned complexes that are outside the field of consciousness sitting within the personal unconscious. Yep. Now, to bring up a second diagram, vroom, you can then see that we've got the ego, and then there's another circle, a new one to, to keep track of, I guess, sitting opposite it, which is this thing called the alter ego. So, so Steve, we've got all these circles and things running around, which is the general psychodynamics. Should you perhaps go into what a complex in the meaning of ego, alter ego, and all these other little circles that are dotting around and annoying people in their field of vision, I guess. What, what are these general things? Right, well, the, uh, I'm going to call it the ego, hope you don't mind. Um, 
it's the proper Latin way of doing it. And I was chastised for that back in the 80s by calling it ego. And I, I was told in those certain terms that's not correct. And I've, uh, I've internalized that as an identified complex. Oh, yes. So, well, to be fair, when, when I talk to people in, in real life, if, 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 if a practical if, example. Um, somebody gives you a suggestion that, that something should be done a certain way and you then internalize that within your self-reference frame, which is your ego, ego, uh, and then you continue on using that and it sits there like a virus and every time you don't do as the suggestion says you should, it gives you a little prod. So, yeah, I'll pronounce it ego, which is the Latin, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, I was just about to say that. Whenever I talk about the ego to other people, you know, I go up to people on the street and go, have you heard of Carl Jung? Yeah, yeah. And I try and make small talk or whatever yeah. else in my very strange way. When I say ego, they usually yeah. think it means like I have an ego and all of this stuff. So yeah, probably yeah. calling it ego is probably more functional anyway, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, the, uh, the ego then is the nuclear complex of the field of consciousness. So in other words, whatever is conscious has a, a core or nuclear complex. That is to say, an arrangement structure, which uh, in the case of the ego contains our self-reference frame. In other words, this is who we are, it's our reflexivity. Um, and whatever we're conscious of at any one moment is related directly to the ego, with, or ego within the center of that field of consciousness. Um, and whatever we identify with as making up ourselves is also internalized within the ego as well. So that's a nuclear complex of the field of consciousness. The alter ego is its opposite, its twin. In a way, it's like Mr. Hyde, but in a way, not. Its, its function is to balance the ego by being the uh, nuclear complex of the personal unconscious. Mm -hmm. And it has its own associated field, so that the higher in energetic value a complex within the personal conscious is the closer it is going to be to the alter ego. Mm -hmm. And so the alter ego or alter ego, sorry, I'm going to, you know, impressionability. <laughs> this I is know, it's terrible, isn't it? terrible. Well, th this, I guess, is, is the key distinction to be because Jung, when he talks about the shadow, it's confusing. I've spoken to friends actually about the shadow. They've come to me and gone, I want to in integrate my shadow, whatever. I'm like, all right, cool. Read Jung's works or whatever. And then they go and they read some of Jung's works and they're like, well, he didn't really talk much about the shadow. Like, it didn't really help me at all. And this is because Jung talks about the shadow being the whole of the personal unconscious. So the shadow is that thing behind you. But in terms of functionality, re-self-development, the yep. alter ego is what we will refer to as the shadow, right? Yes, it is. And you're quite right to point out that at different times he defined the shadow differently. Um, more globally, he said, it's the whole of the unconscious. Um, more specifically, he said it was those psychological experiences that we've had over our lifespan that are no longer related directly to the ego, therefore not within the field of consciousness. Um, it's, it's all of those things. And this is where it's difficult. And this is where we should really do this PDF and explain to people um, where these misconceptions come from. The personal unconscious is in relation to the ego continually throughout lifespan development. So whatever we experience that we can no longer directly experience because the capacity of the ego is full or in terms of memory and learning goes directly into the unconscious, the personal unconscious, our own acquired store of learning. It's analogous in many ways to memory. Mm -hmm. So if you think of it in a, in a neuropsychological sense, it's basically your learned and acquired memory. 
but it's composed of structures which Jung called complexes which are ideas connected to one another through a common emotional tone or emotional charge. Now if you trigger a complex it's very likely the whole thing is kicked off uh, and that then can trigger other complexes and then the information within the complexes reaches a certain energetic level and enters the field of consciousness mm -hmm. and becomes accessible to the ego. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you, you mentioned here, of course, in the manual, this might be very interesting to people, is you've got this kind of ego, or ego, alter ego sort of axis. And you've mentioned that the yes. alter ego is the part of the shadow which most readily personifies in dreams. So, so in terms of if you are dreaming about something, if, a, if an image is representative of the shadow or of the or is a resultant image of a dialectic between the shadow and the ego itself, that's going to be coming from the alter ego itself, right? The core of the shadow. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, its job is to balance the ego out. It's, it's, it's also puts the ego under what I call shadow pressure. Mm. So things which are so polarized with respect to the ego's position that uh, they need to be resolved in some way, then it's the function of the alter ego to push that towards the ego and challenge it. Anything which is lost from the ego in terms of identity or conscious awareness goes back through the alter ego where it's filtered for significance and then displaced back into the personal unconscious where it either becomes a free-floating, unattached component or it will attach to one or more other complexes. If it's to more than one complex, then you have a system of complexes if it's to a single complex, then it just literally adjoins to it mm. and it remains there as a relatively stable system. Mm. It's something I really want to hit on, I think, is the idea of balancing you out and the idea of homeostasis, of course. Yeah. Because, again, I guess it's called kind of myth-busting the shadow in, in, in a way. You have yeah, yeah. the idea that the shadow is not a good thing or it's a thing you must integrate over the course of your life because perhaps you've repressed things about your true nature or culture has repressed those things about your true nature. But the alter ego and the shadow as a general structure cannot itself be integrated it is there as a it has a biological purpose specifically to balance you out so as you were saying earlier if you say i am good and the alter ego goes actually no you're not that actually exists yeah. as a purpose the idea is not yes. to integrate the idea that you're not particularly good in terms of well i am good shut up it's more of an idea that perhaps you should listen to it because the two of them together having a dialectic have the complete picture yeah. is that a fair yeah. summation yeah the, the alter ego doesn't really have a moral position in and of itself. It's simply, or at the first level of its, its function, it, it is there to compensate for whatever position the normal conscious ego takes. Mm. So as I was saying before with uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, if you try to be Dr. Jekyll, you create Mr. Hyde. The alter ego will immediately assume that in equal and opposite measure and will then start to try to push towards creating a dynamic equilibrium point. So there is sta stability between the polarity. The polarity creates a massive concentration gradient in terms of energy between those two structures. And that will then force things to come through. So if, if you ha are say a psychopath and a bad person, mm -hmm. then your Mr. Hyde is paradoxically good and will be trying to push that into the personality of the psychopath. Mm. So with the topic of morality then, which I guess is the thing which most colours the ego, alter ego dynamic, especially as that seems to be how it personifies in dreams, although yeah. both of them are not innately moral by, by character, at least in terms of my un understanding. Um, if 
the way these two things, I guess, are going to interact, as, as you've written here, is um, this is particularly marked when issues of morality and values are taken up by the ego. So what would be yeah. an example of this? Would it be something, uh, say, for example, I decide that, taking a random example, sex before marriage or, or leaving sex until marriage is a moral necessity. What would the alter ego's position in this case be? Well, the alter ego will check that, if you like, by reference to instincts mm. and to archetypes. Uh, and it will then attempt to compensate for the, for the ego's position by pushing something completely different towards the ego. Uh, and if it has to do with sexuality and morality, it will say, well, one of the primary drivers of biological existence is reproduction. So it will push you to go out and reproduce in contradiction to the position taken by the ego. Mm. And so you'll start to feel anxious about it. You'll wonder whether you can be faithful. You may actually indulge in things that, that challenge you. And this is basically shadow pressure from the alter ego, but it's also in concert with instinctive pressure and archetypal pressure as well. Yeah. So this is something I've noticed with um, OCD, if you like, or we'll, yeah. we'll bring up a, a, a really big meme. It's a big meme in our shared discord, of course, the idea of nofap. For, for example, where people are like, okay, I'm going to go onto NoFap, and, uh, but I still have these urges which come up. Mm -hmm. So I imagine the idea of NoFap is this kind of top-down system you have put on top of your ego, the ego. Yeah. And then the alter ego behind you is shouting at you with all of these urges itself. So would you say in this situation, I know it's way more complicated than this, of course, but just as a metaphor to illustrate this, the idea is not NoFap. The idea is listen to what the alter ego is saying and instead find the middle way so that you can end up at the desired outcome that you want without the necessity of a top-down system on top of your ego, right? Yeah. Um, you mentioned the moral complex earlier. Uh, not yet. We can get onto the moral complex oh, yeah. now if you'd okay. like to. No, we'll, we'll bring that in. We'll have to in, in a minute, I mm -hmm. think, to, to make some further sense of this because it is involved in it. Um, but what you'll have there is basically if we exclude the moral complex and we're just looking at the ego and alter ego and their access to communication, you will have uh, shadow pressure. You will have instinctive and archetypal pressures coming through as well. Yep. Um, this has to be pressure tested, though, externally. And that's the role of the ego. The ego has to adjust in an executive sense to the demands of the environment. That's why we have consciousness to the extent that we do, that we can better adapt more quickly than say instincts or even archetypes would adapt mm. to uh, survival pressures with respect to the environment. However, instincts broken no opposition to themselves at all, unless it's another instinct more powerful, or it's possible for the ego and say the moral complex then to provide a reasonable alternative or, um, repressive function against that instinct then the repression may also involve a cathexis as freud called it of libido out of sexuality and into something else so instead of fap you go and do something else with that instinctive energy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay for example and, and that that's a homeostatic system that that's in balance things go wrong when the ego's position is so narrow so focused and so one-sided it effectively makes an enemy of instinct Yes. Um, and it's at that point that the alter ego starts to really turn up the pressure. And then you get firstly an internal division, which is a neurosis. Mm -hmm. And then you get from that 
a disturbance in psychosocial functioning with respect to behavior and relationships. Mm. Uh, and of course, if the ego is particularly narrow and self-focused, then it won't understand what's happening to it. It will try to interpret its experiences in its own terms, its own frame of reference, which is the self-concept. That's a special part of the ego. It's the internal mirror that you look into and say, what am I doing? Is this me? This doesn't fit with who I am. Mm -hmm. As soon as you do that, though, the shadow gets darker and starts to push because it's trying to compensate for your one-sidedness. So essentially, it's an energetic system uh, and it requires, as you say, self-regulation, homeostasis, uh, and a resolution between instinctive pressure and social demands. Mm -hmm. Okay, gotcha. I guess to complete this model, if I bring up a diagram of the moral complex on screen, so we've got, of course, the ego, I'm going to keep calling it ego now, the alter ego, and a third little circle you can see, which is yeah. the moral complex. And there are six different arrows pointing all, all over yeah. the place. So from ego to alter ego, you have repression of the alter ego. So these are basically just showing the general dynamics of how these three yes. things can interact with one another. And then going from the ego to the moral complex, you can also repress the moral complex. So this would be the ego, yes. I guess. I, if, in fact, perhaps we should touch on this before I keep going further. Um, yeah, yeah. What, so how does the moral complex fit into this general diagram system first? Yeah, it's, it's an unusual complex. Um, historically, the notion is very close to Freud's idea of a, a superego or superego, which when Jung broke away from Freud in 1912, uh, Freud's original psychic apparatus, as he called it, which was id, ego, and superego, he essentially just ditched the lot of that. Um, Anthony Stevens has said that in his view that was a mistake. Uh, and he was writing in the 70s and early 80s about the fact that a moral complex really does exist and it really is a factor mm -hmm. and that, that Jungians should not have ditched the idea of it, that the superego so much as modified it to fit in with the rest of Jung's model, mm -hmm. which effectively is, is what's been done here. Now, it appears to be similar to Freud's model. Uh, it isn't uh, because the ontogenesis, the development, if you like, of the, um, the moral complex in our model is different to the Freudian model of the superego, but it does have a similar role in the sense that it's the repository consciously of uh, top-down learned uh, morality, but it's also got an inherited or innate element to it, which is based on instinctive morality, as that has evolved over time, and also archetypal morality as well. So it's in quite a powerful position. Uh, the ego is aware of it because we're all aware of our conscience, unless we're psychopaths. Yep. But they, psychopaths basically have a very serious disorder with respect to the function of the moral complex. It's as if it just isn't there. Mm. So it's likely with psychopathy that this is a genetic condition. And that genetic co condition means that the moral complex does not develop properly at all. Even with uh, social reinforcements, it just doesn't take because the template isn't there to receive it or is insufficiently developed to receive it in a productive way. So it's partially conscious, it's partially unconscious, and it has an additional monitoring function to do with the role of the ego, but it can also inhibit or enhance the alter ego as well. So if you like, it's a, it's a second form of, of a, a governing and regulating system on that tripartite structure of ego, alter ego, and moral complex. So is the, is what you could, I guess colloquially, is the moral complex the conscience? 
yeah this con basically it's your conscience as we mm. would understand that in everyday life um but conscience uh, yeah we all vary with respect to our conscience we all vary with respect to what value set that we have internalized and what value set we have been born with and how they all interact and having acquired that uh, either directly through inheritance or through inheritance and learning that structure that moral complex has to interact with our normal executive function which is the ego and also with the alternative the alter ego to the ego as well in such a way that it doesn't ruin the alter ego's function because that would be a, a problem mm -hmm. and it does happen in psychopathology where you get a guilt complex for example mm -hmm. overamped moral complex which is utilizing the alter ego to attack the ego mm -hmm. okay the imposition of guilt. And, and if you then identify with that complex and internalize it you have a very very bad situation that that person is going to be in a terrible state and it's one of the things you get for example in some uh, cases of OCD where there's, there's terrible anxiety and guilt associated with something which is apparently completely irrational well you have the moral complex and the alter ego working together in unholy alliance if you like mm. to invest into the ego with an identified an ego identified guilt complex mm. so as a i guess for utilities purposes as a general summary of what we've done so far so we have the ego and the alter ego and there's an axis between yeah. them so i put up on the yeah. screen once again and the purpose of the alter ego is to balance out what the ego is doing it, it carries yeah. the, the compensatory viewpoint to your general conscious yes. Yes. attitude and now we brought in this third thing of course which is the moral complex two questions purely on geometry and organization and, and then things like that yeah. um so all of these three things so ego alter ego and moral complex will be generic genetic structures right so they will be yes, either will. a gene yeah. and more likely a network of genes right yes. yeah. sweet okay so would it would it therefore be before we go on to the next question possible for somebody to say not have an ego say if, if you mutate that gene network yeah. enough well you, you um i mean and you actually presumably they wouldn't actually develop beyond childbirth but you know what i mean yeah yeah you, you do see people who are uh, very um developmentally I'll use the word challenged um, through a condition. Um, you see people with extreme withdrawals, schizoid personalities. You, you see people with schizophrenia where there's a fragmentation of the ego. And in effect, there isn't one, as you and I and most people would understand, yeah. a normal executive, externally focused, complex that is conscious and that is, that is involved in uh, the realities of everyday life it, that that is absence in that kind of condition uh, and yeah genetically it is possible insofar as those conditions are, are caused genetically definitely it will have an effect interesting, interesting. just just to go back to the uh, that tripartite structure the ulcer ego has a role in modu moderating or modulating the uh, the moral complex as well yes so it, it's there's only three elements there for them to work uh, properly and in balance everything has to be running properly Yes. So, so on, on that on that diagram, which I'll show again on the screen, now we understand what the moral complex is. All those different arrows, if you're watching, you'll be able to see, it's basically integrating and inhibiting, etc., as a general triad unit. So it is a constant flow of information to keep homeostasis in place. I, I want to ask yeah. a quick question, though. Obviously, the, the, the ego is the nuclear complex of the field of consciousness. And then you've yes. got the alter ego being the nuclear complex of the personal unconscious or the shadow yes. whereabouts yeah. is the moral complex located psychodynamically right 
the moral complex straddles both. Um, you and I, for example, are aware of our conscience. Yep. And we're aware of that innately, instinctively, you might say, up to a point. But there will be elements of that which are just unconscious. Uh, and the extent to which they're unconscious means that they can act autonomously. So it straddles it. And that's a good position for the moral complex to be in if you think it has to communicate directly with both ego and alter ego. Mm. So there's unconscious components and there's conscious components or relatively conscious components. Mm. Okay. Okay. That, so that it, sits, means... it sits partially in the, in the field of consciousness, although it's distance from, from the ego will vary because we don't always think about our morals. Sometimes you know, they're just there and they just behave us. Uh, but when we take the trouble to attend to them, at that point, then you can say that the moral complex approaches the ego more closely, perhaps, than before. Mm -hmm. Okay, sweet. But it's dynamic with respect to its position. Okay, sweet. Well, I guess we generally got the, the psychodynamics down. What I'd like to do, if it's okay with you, Steve, is yep. to bring up individually each of the points you've written down in this guide, which, of course, you can get if you click the link in the description down below. As I say, completely free, no strings attached. <laughs> to go through this step by step and to do an exegesis on what you might mean, if that's all right. Yeah, yeah, no problem at all. So under integration of the shadow, point one you've got yeah. is the personal unconscious as a whole is far too large and dynamic. What do you mean by this? Well, it's a question of volume, if you think about it. The personal unconscious is the repository of every experience you've ever had. It's your entire memory, whether you're accessing that memory or not, it's still in there. Uh, and it contains these functional units, uh, these complexes, which are of an indefinite extent. No one can really say how big that is. But neurologically, obviously, the, uh, the capacity of the brain to store information is immense and only a tiny fraction of that is, is ever conscious. So the idea of integrating all of that within consciousness is just a nonsense from, from the get-go. So you cannot integrate the shadow as defined as being the personal unconscious. You can't do it. Mm. Basically because you are too small. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a volume issue. You simply cannot take it, or a mass issue if you wish. You just simply cannot condense all of that in. Mm. Sweet. Okay. Well, point two you've got, which kind of uh, makes sense or flows on from this. The alter ego is a stable, contiguous structure that cannot be integrated by another separate structure. So with the first point, it's too large. And the second point is it's also a separate structure at the genetic level. And you cannot have a gene network that becomes a Pac-Man to eat another gene network in all of your cells in your body. Right? Yeah. Well, developmentally, the uh, alter ego and the ego itself are all anticipated within what I call a genomic self. This is not a psychological reductionism. This is to put it into its biological context. The self must be represented biologically and genetically. It must be imprinted uh, and it will then be released through lifespan development according to a programmed or timed release. This is obvious. So to reduce the self to psychology is a fallacy and we need to get rid of that straight away. So within the, um, the genome then, the structure will be pre-programmed, albeit it'll be in a virtual state because it's not received any content as yet. But as soon as the ego starts to develop, the alter ego immediately in tandem starts to develop and it remains in that homeostatic balance for the rest of your life. Makes sense. Now, if you absorb a content from the alter ego, 
then the alter ego just takes up something else to replace it. You, you know, you, you could in theory, but it'll never happen, of course, in practice, uh, absorb the uh, into the ego the, the, the contents of the alter ego pretty much up to the capacity of the ego, but you do not then get rid of this. You haven't integrated the structure. So it just fills up again. Yeah. And you have the same problem you had before that whatever's in here is trying to get in there. And, and that is all about the informational uh, quality of the material psychodynamically and how that affects survival, lifespan development, adaptation, all of these things. So it's a structure which remains polarized and opposite. It's innate at birth and it remains psychodynamically active until we finish. Okay, so point three that you've mentioned here is, however, contents within the wider personal unconscious can be integrated into the ego. What do you mean by that? Well, yeah, you see, you get a random turnover as well. And if you think of the alter ego as being a monitor that will hold principally uh, polarized information, it will let something slip by if it's just fairly random and not too bad as well, because without that, you're not going to be able to challenge the ego efficiently if you're just working purely on a polarized model so there is a random turnover just like if, if you remember something and you forget it it's gone but you might recall it again and that will probably bypass the monitoring or at least the inhibition of the alter ego quite naturally so material can turn off into the ego through memory through the normal access of memory without being processed directly or interfered with by the alter ego if however you become conscious of this, the alter ego also immediately becomes conscious of it and it'll make a decision about that content and it might suddenly make you feel anxious about that content or suggest to you that, yeah, that's a really good idea because it challenges you. Mm. And then you might get somatic expression of that, which is, oh, I feel rather good about that. You mm. get a rush of hormones, so you get a psychoneuroendocrine element then kicking in as well. So yes, it is difficult, but you know we have to we have to go with this if we're going to understand what's really happening. Mm -hmm. So an example of one of these things that might bypass then. Uh, well, what would, what would one of those be? Would it be necessarily in say a therapeutic scenario where you're saying you know nope. remember back to your childhood, or could it be you listen to a song and suddenly song lyrics jump up that you haven't heard in you know in my case ten years, in your case five hundred years, right? <laughs> you're very modest it's more like a thousand but yeah it's, it's okay <laughs> so maybe some middle east instead of elderly so so that would that would be the case then that would be something that would bypass yeah as i've just said um but to go back to what you said yes certainly something that has a high emotional uh quotient can bypass very very quickly and music is one of those uh media uh which can trigger an emotional release very, very quickly. And then the alter ego will respond to that afterwards, which is why we often get confusing reactions to sudden emotions that emerge into consciousness. Yes, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, that makes sense to me. In which case, right. onto, onto point four here, you said that polarized contents within the alter ego will actively seek integration into the yes. ego. This is shadow pressure. So would this be a yeah. case of, if you bring up an atomic model, which I'm sure lots of the audience will be familiar with, you've got the nucleus, which has a positive net charge, and you've got the electrons yeah. around the outside, which are like a, a negative net charge. These things yeah. will be attracted to each other. Now the electrons, if indeed we understand how electrons really orbit the nucleus, absolutely no idea, but they're locked together. They are attracted to each other. So is it the same yeah. idea that, say, the ego is positive excluding morality of course for this but one is one yeah, yeah. charge one is the other charge and they'll just be like this 
Yeah, for the, for the purposes of illustration, yes, you can say that. But um, I think the notion of shadow pressure is probably a bit simpler to work with in an everyday mm -hmm. sense. That's, that something which is opposite will build up ahead of pressure. And then it's the job of the alter ego to challenge the ego's position. And that can be on anything, not just a, a moral issue, at which point the moral complex kicks in. Uh, it could be just about a simple choice. Do I go into work today because I'm not feeling well? Or do I turn left at that junction instead of right? Mm. Anything like that. You know, um, it's, it's been constantly monitored. But when you think of the processing capacity of the brain, it's absolutely immense. The computation that's going on continuously to regulate this system is almost unimaginable. And it's certainly incalculable. Mm. But empirically, it's obvious that this is what's going on. And if you work then with that, you can start to not only increase your own level of consciousness, but clinically you can work with people far more effectively. Mm. So the um, if you, I guess, maybe a dam model might work for this. You correct me if, if I'm wrong. You've obviously got a big dam yeah. and on one side you might have no water or a little bit of water. On the other side, you've got massive loads of water. And you're trying to be yeah. a beaver, I guess. You're trying, to, you're trying to block up that dam so that everything is safe for you. But the more yeah. you block it up, in other words, the more one-sided you become, the more pressure is built up on that dam to break through naturally flowing yeah. based on psychodynamics. Uh, absolutely. And I've, I've no doubt we'll discuss later, not everything in the alter ego is bad. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so, so point five, you've got a slightly longer one here, but there are uh, ego tolerances regarding assimilated contents from within the personal unconscious and the alter ego that if exceeded will mean that the ego is effectively possessed by those contents. Inflation of the ego by identification with a content or contents of the personal unconscious is one such example. These tolerances yeah. test against the polarity strength and the volume of potentially assimilated contents. The result yes. is a stable and the result in a stable and healthy ego is a maintenance dialectic intended to sustain homeostasis. That is the most complicated Absolutely. one you've written so far. So perhaps an exegesis yeah. is in order. <laughs> yeah. Well, basically, any system has tolerances within which you can operate. And if you think of the ego as a system that has to maintain its health, otherwise it will be fractured. If we go back to um, looking, say, at the case of uh, schizophrenia, where Jung, for example, basically said that this was the unconscious powering through with such force and strength that the ego was blown apart and you could no longer talk about there being an ego there at all. Mm. But it's just a fragmented personality. Well, that's why the tolerances are built into the system to prevent that happening. So the ego will repress things that exceed its capacity to deal with. But the alter ego also has a role in this for not sending stuff in that will be too dangerous, which is why you get the equilibrium point between the two in terms of energy. Yes. However, yes. there are conditions. I've mentioned schizophrenia as one, but you can get, um, if you like, a, a brief psychotic episode, um, the more common people will realize actually, but where the ego is overwhelmed uh, by something that powers through from the unconscious. And in that case, the alter ego is bypassed completely as well. And this can be an archetypally powered, archetypal pressure uh, experience that exceeds the tolerance of the, uh, of the ego. Now, having said that, if you think about it, that can be positive or negative, depending on the eventual view of the ego when it recapitulates the actual experience. For example, a religious experience can be overwhelming and overpowering. Yep. 
but it can be interpreted as being positive. So even though the tolerances of the normal ego have been exceeded, the ego does not consider it to be a threat or a problem. It comes to some kind of resolution, if you like, with the idea that, that powered itself through, and it will then shape itself accordingly. A lot of it will go away, but it will have a residual effect. Mm. Um, so that, that's one possibility where it could be interpreted as being positive. Uh, then there's a negative one, which is obvious in the extreme where the ego can be fractured into schizophrenia. Mm. When it comes to possession states, well, technically, this is to do with identification. Yes, yes. I was, I was going to ask you about this. I'm sure we'll do a podcast in the future on ego inflation because it's, it's something which has really, really interested me. Um, but I, I guess to go with the idea of being possessed and in particular identified with the contents of the personal unconscious, that's quite an interesting one. What would that look like then? Right. The personal rather than the collective. So we're talking about complexes rather than archetypes yes. in this, this scenario. Yeah. Well, what that would be is that because it's the personal unconscious and you're dealing with things that you have personally experienced and have become systematized, but split off from the ego. In other words, they're no longer conscious, they're in the personal unconscious. Hmm. And that material may or may not be connected to the alter ego. It may be just completely separate and autonomous. It may even have sufficient force to bypass the alter ego and the moral complex. In other words, it's, it's a powerful thing. Mm. It may normally be completely uh, latent with respect to the ego, but still active within the unconscious, dynamically below the level of our awareness. And then at some point, that autonomy takes over and it will power through into the, uh, the field of consciousness. And then the ego encounters it, and then it's like a viral infection. It will become assimilated to it. The ego identifies with this complex it loses its own normal idea of its self-concept, its self-reference frame, and it's effectively taken over. Mm -hmm. Now, you can be possessed by ideas, by belief systems. Um, it can be the result of uh, introjecting a successful personality or idealized external personality. Yep. Uh, the, the impressions from that person can be taken into the, uh, the unconscious where it becomes systematized. Um, um, just as an example, so if, if you learn about Carl, any of any of us learns about Carl Gustav Jung, you have a Carl Gustav Jung complex because that's the organizing center for everything that you learn about that man's work. Mm -hmm. And it will include an impression of the man's personality. So already you're having a personified complex to do with the thing that you're learning about. The more that you pay attention to that complex, the closer it gets to being identified with. So it will approach the ego more and more and more. And then with some people, it will cross that boundary and they will start to act as if they are Carl Jung. Yeah. yeah. You get it. And I'm going to say this is controversial. You get it with Jordan Peterson mm -hmm. at the moment. You get people who start to talk like him, act like him, think they are him. And that's an interject, which has then created a complex, which has reached a critical level of energy. And then has been identified with by that person's ego to such an extent that they become possessed by it. Mm -hmm. Danger there, and I'm not saying this is the case with Jordan Peterson, let, let, let's imagine another scenario where you have a very uh, influential uh, personality, Jung called them the manner personalities, the great cult leaders, for example, or political leaders. Um, this can infect an entire generation, an entire culture, uh, and to the extent that there will be a cadre of impressionable people who will all start to believe this whatever this is and um that will then seize them 
and they lose their own identity completely because once it's identified with this ego identified complex it acts like a virus and i can explain that in simple i hope simple terms mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well i've been um, i've been very uh, open yeah. i guess on this channel about my particular relationship not just with jordan peterson but with other particular characters and you can actually track my own yeah. development if people are interested in doing that you can see what i what i was like then i released a video called why why having heroes is dangerous where i yes. you can see me slowly coming to consciousness with me not being me, but me instead being one of these men who I envisioned to be great and who I should become. And then you can see me coming fully conscious of it and fully resolving that yeah. in my yeah. How Jung Saved Me From Dante's Hell video. So you can actually track to see yeah. how that works. Yeah. People have said yeah. to me, you know, my whole internet career, if you like, it's only been about two years long or whatever, to be like, you speak like Jordan Peterson, you use his words, you move like him and everything else. So as a practical everyday example, that would be one. Yeah, can I just say, one, I'm not uh, suggesting Jordan Peterson has done any of this deliberately. No, I don't think so either. It's perfectly normal to um, interject role models. It's absolutely normal. It's a part of normal experience, normal social learning and adaptation. The problem occurs when we lose ourselves in terms of identity with the object, the outer person, and it can be a belief system. It doesn't have to be a person. It can be a religion. It can be a political uh, movement. It can be anything like that. But you can't individuate if you simply replicate. And the replication is where the viral analogy comes in. An identified complex, once it's inside the ego, think of the ego then as a host cell. And this uh, system that comes in will force the ego to replicate its ideation in the same way that a virus forces the host cell to replicate its DNA. And it will fight to survive. It, it, it has functional integrity. Complexes do. The more autonomous they are, the more they act as if they are living separate autonomous systems. Jung identified this. He was perfectly comfortable with that idea. Um, and as I say, once identified with by the ego, then you have a problem. And normally we have an immune response, if you like, a psychological immune response, which says, that isn't me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to disidentify with that. And then it's lost if that uh, response uh, is successful. If that happens, then the alter ego will just do a Pac-Man on and grab it and it will assess it and say, well, is there some value in this? If there is, I'm going to shuck it back at you. And this is why we feel the continuous cycle of anxiety coming from ideas that we thought we've gotten rid of. Because the alter ego might be saying, no, there's something more you can learn from this. I'm going to push it back at you. And the moral complex kicks in and says, well, let's evaluate this. Is this right or not? And the alter ego will say to the moral complex, yeah, I know it's bad, but, you know, just just tone down a little bit. Otherwise, you won't listen, that kind of thing. Mm. So you think of it as being interactive elements that are trying to evaluate an end goal that's beyond the immediate moment. But we suffer with anxiety from these things in the immediate moment. And it's that that destabilizes the ego, particularly if people lack patience to deal with things that have to be unraveled over a period of time also i'll just add i'm sorry if this is too much no it's not Um, keep going you're on a roll uh, the unconscious has an incubation period a typical waveform if you like um it's not that slow but i've observed and even recently people have been saying this to me that you should give something at least two days at least two days um to get a response um, from the psyche that's in 
equilibrium. The initial reaction from the unconscious might be just simply to generate an opposite. Mm -hmm. Just because you're, you are polarized, you're one-sided. Give it at least two days to come up with an alternative or a mid-position, and it probably will. Uh, so two days, if you're under, should we say, clinical pressure to sort something out where you've got someone who's saying you have to do this, a little bit longer if you neglect it completely. Mm. And would, In fact, would it, the, might uh... never, it might never happen, and the solution might emerge as, as an absolute hardcore neurosis because that's the attempt of the system to correct you. Yes. So to, to, to bring down theory as to why this idea of when you're encountering a severe moral problem, you should wait and not immediately go with what the psyche or what you believe to have thrown up. Is this because yeah. of its biological origins where we aren't a floating head necessarily, which is immediate feedback? If we are at the genetic level, then transcription and translation, which is basically how you turn DNA into you, which is protein. Is yeah. it because that takes time, do you reckon? Yeah, I think that's, that's a perfectly reasonable assumption because, as you know, I always default back to what's the biological probability that this model reflects reality because you can't do away with biology. You can't book biology. It's always there. And let's, be, let's face it, in the end, it will kill you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Biology does destroy itself, ultimately. Um, and that's a dark thing to say, but it's a fact. And, and when we, we discuss, for example, Freud's notion of thanatos, which I regard as biological entropy, mm -hmm. where a system deliberately runs itself down. And, uh, you know, the, the, the genetic basis for this is, is probably there as well with the way that the body ages and so forth. And then lifespan development only has meaning if lifespan has a definite span and not an indefinite one. So we are intended to run down um, and we have to deal with this process. Sorry if that's dark. No, well, it is dark, but it's real. Yeah. I can take it's more it. I can take more it. imminent for me than it is for you. Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. I've heard about the old dreaded 27. Probabilistically. Probabilistically. <laughs> You'll accept that, won't you? I'll, I'll accept that. I won't, I won't be nice anymore. I'll integrate my shadow and stop being nice to you. Um, <laughs> the, so the next point, because that, that was some really good stuff there, like sincerely. The next point here is, you've said, where the ego is compromised, but an outright possession does not occur, a state of identification by the ego with the intruding contents can still happen. Both of these examples represent psychopathology. A possession state can describe a psychosis. Identification can happen with any complex intruding into the ego. In such circumstances, yes. the complex in question is said to be ego identified. And if sufficiently pathological, can lead to a very powerful neurosis. So there are a few, few words, I guess, before breaking that down. You've mentioned psychosis and you've mentioned neurosis. Because neurosis, yeah. this is actually a word I never really liked. When I was a, a very, even maybe even a more extreme INTP uh, kid, a teenager, I, I, when I first learned what well, neurotic is, meant. Is that even possible, Jay? <laughs> is that I, even possible? I, I, you're the most hardcore INCP I've ever experienced. For now, for now. But I, I, I remember going, going to my mum when I learned what the word neurotic meant. I was like, mum, I think you're quite neurotic. And there was immediately, she was like, why are you being mean to me and all, all of this stuff? But neurotic might not mean what people believe neurotic to mean no. in this context. So what is yeah. psychosis and what is neurosis, basically? Okay, well, we'll start with neurosis. That's more common and it's less severe in intensity, uh, but it can cripple people's lives. Basically... It's an anatomical term that mm -hmm. just means a division. We have a palmar neurosis, which is a division in mm -hmm. our palm. There it is. Uh, and a psychoneurosis, which was the original definition, going back to Freud and Breuer back in the uh, late 19th century, just means a division between two opposite 
positions within the psyche and that that division is creating problems. That's all it is. So it's not a pejorative term, although people use it pejoratively. It just literally means a division. It's in common, uh, in my view, with the, the term hysteria, which was an unfortunate term, which um, was used abusively in the 19th century, because it means a wandering uterus. Right. So someone who's hysterical had a wandering uterus. Well, why is that? Because only women are neurotic. Mm -hmm, ah, mm -hmm. only women have you know um th 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 that was awful but it went through a phase shift if you like through people like charco uh, and others uh Charco, for example who was one of uh, freud's teachers uh believed for example that only uh hysterical people could be hypnotized because hypnosis involved a division of consciousness mm -hmm. a splitting so therefore it was the same thing Later, that was shown not to be the case. Anyone can utilise a trans state. Uh, and we will, we will discuss this in, in later uh, podcasts. But the reason I'm going into the, the, this notion is that like neurosis, hysteria does have a dignity about it in terms of its real meaning as opposed to the pejorative meaning. That a hysteria is just, in everyday clinical uh, terms, a division that goes so far that it's not in the mind anymore. It's actually also in the body it's a mind body division so you have a situation which is represented psychologically and it's represented somatically it's not unreal which is the old definition of uh, hysteria it's um it's something which involves a, a real change physically in the body which is the opposite side if you like of the coin to the mind so the the head of the, the coin is the psyche. The tail of the coin is the body. It's the same coin, the same information read on a different face. That's all that is. Uh, with respect to hysteria, though, in the traditional sense of being involved in hypnosis, uh, I'll give you a brief uh, case history, if you like, where something went modestly wrong on a training course with therapy. Um, it was a nurse, uh, she was a general nurse, uh, uh, she hadn't had any psychic, psychiatric experience at all. And um, we were working in the medical sense and as part of a training program. And I showed it was possible to alter the temperature of your body so that you felt warm on one side and cold on the other. It's, it's a simple thing and it should normally be a very safe thing to do. What I didn't factor in was that this general nurse worked with stroke patients, right? So when she received that suggestion and she was put into a trance state so she would receive a suggestion, um, she defaulted back to making sense of that. So her fear of having a stroke then produced an hysterical stroke, yes. not a real yeah. one because she wasn't really paralyzed. But yeah. she, in effect, became paralysed because that's what it meant to be cold on one side of your body and hot on the other. Yeah, and, I, I've, uh, had, I've had a similar thing. I don't want to suddenly trigger things yeah. on air. I've, I've had very, very, very similar things. A small, yeah. tiny physiological change. For some reason, I go, stroke! And I was, uh, there was a time I was having um, an anxiety attack a while back and there was Jane watching me. She's going like, what, what are you doing? And I'm there with my arm in the air. I'm like, I'm having a stroke. I'm having a stroke. I'm having a stroke. She's like, no, no, you're not. Just because you've got like a warm face. You're all right, mate. Not yet, not yet James. You're far too keen to have one of those. You know? <laughs> let, let it wait, you know, let it wait. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Don't worry. Oh, good, good. So as I say, um, that was pure hysteria. 
in the old sense, not just because it was a woman, but because it was someone making sense of something in a nonsensical way, because the, um, the physical manifestation of the symptom didn't exactly produce a stroke at all. Um, and this was what Charcot found, that people who got paralysis, say, after an accident, usually at a railway accident, and they would then go on to make a claim against the, uh, the railway company, um, produced symptoms that they imagined unconsciously would be commensurate with, say, a head injury rather than the reality of it. Um, so he showed that consciousness dissociates. Mm. Um, and that, that was of interest. So I'm, I'm sorry if that was an aside. No, but that, no that's good. That's to show that uh, neurosis is just a division. Hysteria is an exaggerated uh, division, which includes bodily symptoms and not just ideation, not just thoughts. Mm -hmm. gotcha. now, neurosis can also affect psychosocial functioning as well. It can affect relationships, which is why we are a biopsychosocial model. And we look at the representation of a neurosis at every level of an individual's functioning, because it does exist at every level. Mm. So in going back to this text, then, as you yeah. said, in such circumstances here, which is identification with a complex, when it becomes yeah. ego identified and it's sufficiently pathological, yeah. it can lead to a very powerful neurosis. Is this because yes. the, the complex literally fractures the ego or is it because whatever the ego thinks it is, is split between itself and the complex? Well, the, the ego fails to discriminate between itself and the intrusive, I'll call it virus, mm. viral complex. It says that is me. Yeah. And because it is me, I can't not be it. Yes. So so, yeah. so this would be very similar to an example of somebody such as myself or um, some of the audience have told me it's the same thing with them. They see a great man or they perceive yeah. somebody to be a great man and yeah. they believe it to be themselves. So that is an yeah. example of a neurosis in this context because there is a split in your own identity or your own perceived yeah. identity. Absolutely. Um, Hitler was, uh, was very good at doing that. He was very good at inducing a state in a mass psychosis if you like sense um although it's not strictly a psychosis but but a, mm. a mass neurosis perhaps would be an easier way of saying it where people identified with his identification mm. according to Jung, he believed or he acted as if he believed that he incarnated the german people so does this uh, random idea came to mind is yeah. this more common among people of certain types than others in terms of identification? Um, I think it's probably easier with intuitives, mm -hmm. but it's not limited to them. It's just easier. Would that be more, um, or does it matter, extroverted intuitives or introverted yes, intuitives? More so the extroverted intuition, because that reaches out to the object and attaches itself to the object. But having reached out, it also internalizes as well. It's not a one-way communication. It's not like you just paint your environment with your intuition. You, you bounce off it and then re-internalize that where it starts to get to work on the inside. Whereas introverted intuition, it's the reverse process where intuition, first of all, lights up the inner world and then interprets the outer world according to that. The extroverted intuitive, as I say, is the reverse. They go out into the outer world and then pull the outer world in and make a mess of themselves through mm. that. Okay, so in other words, the INTP, me, you, are most likely to identify with the most, the most likely to, unless they've developed their the discriminatory powers, in other words, their introverted thinking, sufficiently to not be in service to their autonomous intuition. Gotcha, gotcha. It's like you, your generation may or may not know this old saying, mine certainly did, that, that uh, fire is a good slave but a poor master. Mm -hmm. Yep, 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 yep. 
it's it's the same intuition as like fire you know you make it work for you it's fantastic yeah but if it runs you you're likely to get into a mess yes yeah that makes really sense are. because uh, extroverted intuitive dominant individual who is channeling if you like the collective unconscious will project all sorts of crap out into the world and believe that it's real and will then start to persuade other people that it's real. This is how cults build uh, because they they appear to be a medium because yeah, they are communicating with the unconscious, but their their way of uh, relating to the world is via intuition and it's extroverted. So it's literally all over the show and it's painting the environment with the contents of the unconscious. Yeah, this is why I couldn't use Twitter for very long. I had to give up Twitter a year ago. I believe I can put it in this particular model. You can correct me if I'm wrong, of course. I would perceive the timeline and my strong NE extroverted intuition would like pull me out directly to that particular object. It would make me feel completely and utterly sick because all I would perceive is people just basically being walking personas, essentially. And then my TI or my introverted thinking would be like, why are you here? This is all nonsense. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Perhaps there's a moral complex in there too. So I'd have to pull myself away, I yes, guess. Yes, it, it, will, it will be there. Um, but extroverted intuition is very good at persuading people of things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In other words, a very good liar, you might say. Yes, it can be. and yeah. uh, but, but not just um, a liar as in, say, the way uh, somebody with a, a personality disorder would utilise it. But the collective unconscious can utilise an individual's extroverted intuition to paint the world in a particular way, yeah. which then results in other people interjecting that and identifying it, which was my point about Hitler. Yeah. Now, he, he said basically that he was the state ghost. He was the incarnation of, of the German people. And it performed in such a way that that caused a lot of people to internalize that and identify with it. And they weren't psychotic. They just had an ego-identified complex that said Hitler is, is Germany. Yes. It was the same with Napoleon. Napoleon apparently said, I am France and France is me. Mm. And he mobilized the entire country to do ridiculous things like invade Russia mm-hmm. you know, in the winter, which was a complete disaster. <laughs> Because the guy was driven by his, his intuition, which made him believe he could overreach himself because he was no longer an individual. Yeah. But this is something that we can, we can talk about when we discuss typology. Sweet. And just a, quick one, just a quick one on typology, you have to keep it simple. The more convoluted the model that's used, the more narrow, paradoxically, it becomes. You make a big model, it actually reduces in its effectiveness. And this is why Jung rejected type tests. Mm-hmm. But we can come to this on, on another occasion. I sure, think. definitely, definitely. Typology has obviously been very requested, and typology is amazing. Pauline is excellent at that. She's excellent at that in terms of relating to people. I'm really good in the theory, you know, um, but she's really, really good with relating to real people. Well, I, I can tell that interacting between the, the two of you, actually. There's quite um, a, a polarity, if you like, a word that's yeah, yeah. On, on topic between the two of you. But I guess moving on in terms of integrating the shadow, obviously, we've, we've yeah. the whole idea of people perhaps coming, being excited about integrating the shadow. And then there's all this. Yeah. There is a lot of theory built into there, but it's also highly, highly practical in the case of be oh, careful. Yeah. Yeah. These are what could be going on in terms of your yeah. depth psychology journey. But onto the onto the next point, we've got here a healthy ego can maintain its structural integrity. It has a psychological immune system function that acts to discriminate against intrusive content under shadow pressure and against negative suggestion 
influence from other complexes, psychosocial factors, and even misfired archetypal and instinctive pressures. So, of course, you've touched on this earlier, but I guess it's a case of saying almost comfortably, kind of the idea that comes to mind, you're not on your own in a way, that you're not just sitting there and it's like, the the evil shadow is luring over you and it wants to take care no. of you, you know, or, or take over you. It's like you do have an immune system, like white blood cells in your own body, to kick out dodgy contents which aren't yes. really you and don't belong. And, and you mentioned yeah. as well in terms of magnitude of those contents and how they might want to penetrate into the ego. It's like it also regulates itself with that to not completely flatten you with the entire contents of your shadow, right? Absolutely. Well, well, the alter ego will also try and inhibit things that are too big that are coming from say lifespan development that are released as archetypes under instinctive pressure mm. and in, in, instincts are the most blunt of uh, of all psychodynamics they just want to be actualized mm. well you, you, you know, mentioned uh, one to me before uh, off, off air as part of my own development i guess about the idea of the warrior and how every man has this warrior phase that they might feel like they're going to go through would this be yeah. would this fit into this example yeah, it would. I mean, this is an individuation issue, but the, the typical um, hero cycle that's pushed is a young man's hero cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not a young woman's, and not a middle-aged man, not a middle-aged woman, not an older man or an older woman either. It's always that. And there's a good biological reason for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, young men are the ones who are sent out to fight the wars. Yep. Men are, the, men are the ones who have to compete with other young men for women, for reproductive rights and for resources. They're the up-and-coming generation that have to go through the, the, these typical hero cycle phases. The guys who send the young men out are usually middle-aged and they've survived that period and they've got the women and they've got the resources. But they know, they know instinctively that young men are driven by biology and are stupid enough to go out and sacrifice themselves pointlessly to make sure that the middle-aged guys who are experienced and have gotten through all of this maintain their power. And, and this, is, also, this is an archetypal pattern, though, basically. This is, this is, this is, this is pre-programmed. Pattern. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's your standard hero cycle that most people are aware of, and that's why you get the typical hero in a narrative behaving the way he or she does. Mm-hmm. It's all to do with with um, proving yourself as a man, uh, with getting the right girl, and all that. And when, when, when you bring that back down to biology, you can see how that kicks in, and also why there are mass movements in wartime. For example, the First World War in, in the UK is a really clear example for for UK culture, um, to do with Lord Kitchener and how he mobilised an entire generation to go and sign up and uh, throw themselves away. Mm. I'm not saying that what they did wasn't noble. It certainly was. But it was also biological, and it's driven biologically, and it relies on a relatively lower level of discrimination and therefore consciousness in the young people uh, so they don't realise what's going on. Now, that said, that said, if the group, if the tribe is under threat from another set of young men, and of course, we need our young men to be able to go out and fight them. So there's always this balance. It's always been present. And it, that's why it sustained itself biologically. But with respect to the hero cycle, you get that at every adaptive phase in life. You, you get it progressively as you go through probably each generation, sorry, each decade of your life. There are new challenges. You have to reinterpret yourself continuously. Yes. So it's possible to go through the hero cycle uh, over and over and over again. Yes. 
So in the, in the context of this idea of this of psychological immune system, then you have a young yeah. man, he hits a certain age. I don't know when this kicks in, maybe 15, 16, 18, 20, absolutely no, no idea, probably somewhere around there. And there's, they have archetypal pressure that, that mm. comes on top of them saying, okay, be a warrior. Can I, can I just, um, can I just uh, interject there? Yeah. Certainly when I was young, there was no sort of inhibition to young boys playing with toy guns and things like that. And, and we grew up in the immediate post-war post-World War II uh, era. Mm-hmm. And um, just being allowed to have access to things like that and express it, it was going on everywhere. Everyone was a proto-soldier. Every young boy was a warrior. And that's the, the attitude that they had, and it was considered normal. Um, and there was probably a lot less neurosis around, actually, I, mm-hmm. I might add, in that mm-hmm. sense. Um, so I think the archetypal pattern is there very, very early on. And there's a lot of um, anticipatory rehearsal that goes on ahead of puberty. So by the time you're at puberty, you've already had the ideas come through, you've already the instincts come through, and then you start to reach the point where hormones are pushing you and you physically get capable of delivering and you've already been inducted into that culture, you know, the culture of being the young man and the hero and you're up and you're ready to go. That's what will happen if there isn't uh, a cultural repression of those things in young men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, so it's a good question. I think it kicks in very early, and yes, it is archetypal and it is instinctive. Mm. And and if this thing gets too strong, will then this psychological immune system to protect the ego come in? Because you've mentioned, of course, in that yeah. particular section, it's uh, it protects you even against um, misfired archetypal and instinctive pressures. Is what is what you've written. Yes. It so does. it'd be the same yeah, thing. So someone they've grown up, perhaps they. Um, I've known a few people like this. They have this idea of the warrior and the soldier in their head as if that is their true calling, but something within them will come up and put a buffer against it. Yeah. And this yeah. is your immune system to protect you, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. If, if any system runs outside of its tolerances, it will it will just crash. Gotcha. 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 Perfect. Uh, on to the next point then. The alter ego is meant to help sustain this healthy state by providing a monitoring and regulating function. Of course, as we we discussed this before, the alter ego, we're saying colloquially conflating it with the shadow as such, is there for yeah. a reason, which is to balance you out in a homeostatic yeah. mechanism. Like if you yes. if you eat sugar, you take it into your bloodstream, your pancreas secretes in- insulin in order to bring that back down to normal levels. The alter ego is the same thing at the resolution yeah. of the psyche, as well as biology yeah. at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not your enemy. A priori, it is not. But, you've written next, but it only becomes a problem when the self-regulating axis is compromised. What do you mean by that? Well, the self-regulating axis in this uh, instance, I do not mean the ego self axis. I mean the ego alter ego axis, which of course sits on the ego self axis. It's uh, like the end point, if you like, of that, because that's the, the, that with the alter ego and the moral complex are the final regulating factors along that axis before it impacts, the information impacts uh, the ego. If that is compromised through learning, usually it's going to be through top-down or external influence, socially, politically, culturally, or simply through neurosis, so it doesn't function properly, then something very unpleasant might be able to get through. Okay, and what could you give a practical example of this, perhaps, to try and illustrate it? Say, Ooh. say, say. So, so, if culture can come down and rupture it, what would be a cultural example of that then? Well, I mean, the, the present culture, and this, of course, isn't politically correct, could be that uh, masculinity could be deemed toxic, mm. and if that is if that's internalised and believed, 
sufficiently, the ego then will get out of kilter with the alter ego's regulating function. Yes. Uh, and it will also result in an overamped and one-sided moral complex as conditioned by social factors. You've got a mess then. You've got a definite mess because everything coming through from the self along the ego self axis, which is basically basically your lifespan uh, development program, will be being filtered through this disorganized system, yes. this functional dysregulated system, and that will screw everything up. Yeah, I'm going to bring that up as an example. I like to go back to see, um, you know, someone comes to me with a philosophical idea or something. It could yeah. be anything within the culture or even outside of the culture. It could be fringe. This is the way things should be. And I always like to bring it back to, does it make sense in terms of your lifespan, generally speaking, reproduction and, and, and happiness? Doing what we have always done, just like a dog does what dogs have always done, because it is what they are yeah. doing. And so in which case it's a good fail test or a good um, litmus test, I guess, of a particular idea is, is this yeah. influencing or interfering with normal lifespan development. So in the case of toxic masculinity, it could be a case of you don't breed. And that's no yeah, good. Yeah. That's really Absolutely. not good. Absolutely. If you get a moral complex then, which is uh, internalized by um, by default, by bouncing this this uh, this information in off the ego, and it assimilates that and says, yes, I agree with this, then you defeat the biological program immediately, which is that you're intended at least to compete for reproductive rights that that's in the genome that's frustrated immediately and anything associated with the release of that behavior across your lifespan development will also be affected that's awful that's a terrible thing to do to someone yeah yeah and, and to do to a culture it's not politically correct to say but political correctness will pass mm -hmm. and oh, yeah. I've, I've um perhaps this is evaluated accordingly. maybe i've got a problem with my moral complex because it's almost um to the extreme of more of my peers, to the extreme of most of my peers, all of them probably, uh, I have tried to stand up against that kind of thing in daily life, which has, has led to a whole bunch of unpleasant related things. But yeah, don't be afraid to be non-PC on this on this channel. <laughs> it's all, all about facts, truth, science, etc. Yeah. Well, I'm a retro man circa 1973, I think. So yeah, maybe you can get away with it then. You're just the, the well, silly, silly old man, man right? <laughs> yeah, I was a young man then. We had a good time in the 70s. Yes. Well, on to, on to the next point then. Yeah. You've written, the ego can, all in caps, safely integrate elements of the alter ego and wider personal shadow if it is in a homeostatic state of balance. And I guess that's the key point then, is if you are out of balance, yeah. because perhaps this axis has been compromised through the new number of those factors that, have, uh, that could influence you, then you won't be able to safely integrate things. Therefore, you will no longer remain in balance. You'll become more and more and more one-sided until bang, something... Yeah bad will probably Absolutely. happen and basically that's what uh you see clinically is fundamentally it's all about dysregulation at some point and it's finding out when did that happen uh what's been disturbed uh and how do you help this person find their balance again then you don't have to make any kind of moral you know issue about the way they're living their life or anything like that. It's all about self-regulation. Gotcha. 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 Very, very simple one. Sweet. Next point is the level of consciousness and development of the ego is crucial in maintaining a healthy attitude to the polarized contents of the alter ego and the personal unconscious. So you've got here level of consciousness and development. What do you mean by yes. that? Well, the level of consciousness really is just the, the, uh, the, index if you like of the discriminatory power of the ego to say whether something is right or wrong or not 
uh, that takes introspection, that takes evaluation, it takes a degree of life experience. So if your ego is functioning optimally, it will be able to do these things. But if through suggestion, and there are two kinds of suggestion, there's hetero-suggestion, that's suggestion through others. Mm -hmm. So that's just like a social thing. And then there's also suggestion that originates within the self or within yourself. And that can come from a complex. It can come from a misfired archetype. It can come from instinctive pressure. Any of these things that we've been, we've been uh, discussing. The ego has to discriminate between these things because in, in the end, the ego has the executive role to make decisions about life and about survival. Everything else feeds into it. Gotcha. So, gotcha. so, so, so have, as, as you um, just, I guess, to try and make it con concrete, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I've heard people say, for example, it's quite a woo-woo thing, but it's off the, off the context of the of the Ion series I did, of course, mm -hmm. the first thing on Carl Jung and his works I did on, on the internet, there's an idea of, in the Aeon of Aquarius, we must all raise our consciousness. And it's woo-woo yeah. and fluff, but basically what you're suggesting is, as you develop and as you learn things through wisdom, perhaps, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living, as you learn yeah, yeah. things, your consciousness does become more developed, and therefore you are more equipped yes. to deal with challenges from the outside, and also challenges from the inside, in ways yes. in which you are dysregulated yeah yeah sweet so really you, you have a default position without any significant level of conscious development which is mainly instinctive and archetypal and then added to by social hetero suggestion and if you you exist at that level you're the victim of the outer world and you're the victim of the inner world and the ego is not doing its job you cannot individuate for example without increasing consciousness you don't become more conscious by losing it which is the, the product of some uh, self-development systems, paradoxically. Mm -hmm. It involves a lowering of consciousness to the point where it just almost disappears. That's yeah. not becoming more conscious. It's just not. And I say that as someone who has a lot of experience in Eastern methods. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, you don't become more conscious by doing that. Yep. Well, another thing as well, um, this is something I've been guilty of in the past, which is why I bring it up. It might be useful to some of you guys listening. Um, you don't individuate by reading Carl Jung's books. I know it comes from, uh, it, you, you know, if you were to make like a, a, a computer program or an AI system, you don't create it and go done. Like if I, was, if I was still back in my PhD and I make a program, I don't go, oh, done. You have to test it and update it in real time based on information yeah. that you take from say a database that I was doing, for example, I'm feeding things in, there are inputs, but also mm -hmm. there are things within it that are dysregulated and not, you know, conjoined. Mm -hmm. So there might be an idea of I'm going to individuate through uh, purely introverted means that uh, create a nice fantasy from with my ego, basically going that I am learning, I am wise, I am strong. It has to be an updated real-time feedback process over the course of your entire life, right? Yeah, it, it, it does. Think about Carl Jung uh, and everything he's ever written is that basically what you're seeing there is his ongoing worked through self-analysis and the exposition of his personal myth. Yeah. Now, he didn't hide this, but people don't pick up on the fact that he didn't hide it. They treat it as if it's, I'll use the expression, the Bible, as if yeah. it's some kind of authority that's come off either Mount Sinai or Mount Olympus or whatever, rather than what he said, this is my personal myth. Yeah. Now, he said that in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, but he was quite clear that you should follow his collected works and see the development of his ideas. He was also very clear that he was not going to go back and revise any of it mm -hmm. because it was his journey. And he then said, thank God I'm young and not a Jungian. 
Mm. Now put all of that together and it's do it for yourself. Yes. Become who yeah. you are. Not follow this 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 thing Whatever and become the is. idea of the wise man that you have in your head. Because yeah. the wise whatever, man within you, in your biology, is. will manifest itself naturally yeah. as you go through this process. That's yeah. the idea of integration of the shadow, I guess, within a nutshell, combined yes. with all the other bits of development that you have to do. Yeah, yeah, I, I do think he was an insightful genius. I agree. I, well, for what my opinion's worth, it, I agree. And make no apology for saying that I do believe that. I think it's demonstrable, but. As with everyone else, there's a whole baggage that comes around that, which has to do with his personal myth and his experiences. I'm sure we'll discuss this further uh, on another occasion. But some people, where they feel there's an overlap between their experience and Jung's, will then internalise that and overamp perhaps their own one-sidedness. Yes. And they then don't individuate at all. They'll fall down. He would have hated that. He didn't even like there being a Carl Jung Institute. He didn't like it. He thought yeah. it was a mistake. And do you reckon this is why, among personal private reasons, he did not want the Red Book published? Because someone might read no. the, red, the Red Book and with their own personal fantasies, conflate the two of them together and go, I'm on the same path as Carl Jung. I'm an enlightened man. I must follow the wave, right? You, you can't be by doing that because you're not addressing yourself or your own potential. He would have hated that. And also another thing to note too, and you can see it on, on YouTube, a lot of people who would be considered now in the second generation from young or even the, the survivors of the first, they copy him. Yeah. They hold a pipe like he does. They talk like he does. And I thought, if he was around now, he'd be kicking you down the stairs, as he did with a few of them. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and with one of his patients, who, who later became an, uh, an analyst, he jumped into his boat and rowed away across... Zurich and shouted back, go away, you bore me. <laughs> you know, I mean, there you go. Be yourself. Well, an absolute legend. Well, an absolute legend. He, uh, he, yeah, he, he yeah. integrated his shadow. He did. All, yeah, all, uh, all, all he, the way. He, he had a hell of a shadow himself. But he yeah, didn't hide yeah it. he did. He did, to be he fair. He didn't hide it. And, and that's where I think the great teaching comes across. Yeah. Is that he wants people to do things for themselves and discover things for themselves. And uh, one of the big letdowns that mainstream Jungian psychology has sadly indulged in is that they are beyond the reach of ordinary people. Definitely. They cannot compete with cognitive behavioral therapists in frontline NHS in the UK uh, provision, service provision. They can't do it. That means there's something wrong with what they do. Mm hmm. And uh, we've proven this because you can take Jung's model into primary healthcare and into acute and even chronic psychiatry and you can deliver results and you can compete with CBT people and, and blow them away. We've yeah. done it. The main reason is that they try to start where Jung finished when he'd already gotten bored with, with treating people and with therapy and he was basically completing his personal myth through his researches his early work on complexes and his psychiatric work and his experimental work, that's where everything that you need is in order to go out there and be a really, really effective and efficient therapist and eliminate the competition, shall we say. Because there are so many holes in CBT, it's not even worth considering. Just put it in the bin. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree through personal experience. Yeah. The uh, the I've never seen CBT work in my own personal life. I've been advised to take it. I did not for a variety of reasons. Uh, but the Jungian stuff worked it immediately work. o- overnight. Yes. As I explained in that, how Jung saved you from Dante Hell video, it was like, bang, you're fixed. It works. It's real. There's none of this. Yeah. I, I won't go into that now, I guess. But yeah. uh, moving on to point 12. You've written here, the alter ego and wider personal unconscious originate like the ego as structures in the organismic or psychobiological self, which is prefigured in the genome. Their interaction is continuous over the lifespan. Of course, you've, you've, you've touched on this, I guess. Yes. This is bringing things down into a basis in biology, into actual science, so not being psychoreductive or reducing things to yep. the level of the yep. psyche. And to say that, well, the ego is a structure in biology, like the hand is, and yep. so is the alter ego, and so is the personal unconscious. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you say, we have illustrated these points. I think the reason I repeated them now and again, or, or had some overlap, was, was to express nuance. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And to encourage people to think again as they move through that list to go back and to recapitulate, because uh, it helps to build something up then, so it's not too reductive into just simplistic statements. Okay. And the next point you've written here is: uh, in extreme circumstances, this can lead to the ego being assimilated by the intruding complex with collapse of the normal personality. So, uh, I mean, I understand the idea of, um, I guess the white blood cell thing could be a yeah. good analogy. A normal, yeah. healthy white blood cell, for example, will, it will go around scouting, and there are lots of different types of them. For example, in, in the lungs, as, as you breathe, maybe, yeah. if you're, maybe you're a smoker or you're in a toxic area, you breathe in things which are bad for you, and the white blood cells, they crawl along, and they find it, and they eat it. And presumably the idea there is you're eating the thing which is bad. But in this particular case, you've mentioned that a uh, extreme circumstances, a complex can eat the ego, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, we touched on this. Uh, perhaps I didn't fully ex- explicate it earlier to do with uh, neurosis and psychosis and the difference between the two. Um, and then I mentioned the kind of collective neurosis you can get where someone like Hitler, for example, is able to influence an entire country. Uh, through suggestion, particularly the men, but also the women, but particularly the men, because they did most of the frontline fighting in in the Second World War for Germany. They uh, internalized that suggestion and effectively lost their orientation. So that's one clear psychosocial example of that. But you can have it intrapsychically as well, where a particular complex gets so powerful that it shifts the ego completely and replaces it. But as, as we've said earlier at least if you're a normal or you were over the course of your lifespan a healthy person with an ego you won't actually completely destroy the ego in this particular instance because it's a genetic structure you just exist almost like a fish within a fishbowl you're sort of of stuck in in there and you can't leave in this case you you would take the analogy of a cell which has basically been evacuated of its contents and had a whole load of other dna and rna and mitochondria or whatever pump back in to replace it so it's still a functioning unit but it's just not the same thing anymore uh and you would get this with multiple personality mm. yeah where you have basically a separate personality to get stronger and stronger and then eventually takes over now genuine cases of multiple personality disorder are very rare genuine ones psychopaths some of them when they're well informed can um produce an impression of it when it's not actually there 
mm-hmm. particularly if they get gullible psychologists or psychiatrists who are looking to find cases, then they just get the confirmation bias and get manipulated. Yes. But where it is genuine, then that can happen. Another case, or another uh, perhaps interesting, I mean, we can discuss this on another day in some depth, would be the phenomenon of past life regression. Ooh, okay. Under hypnosis, where people access alleged past lives. You get this with Hindus a lot, for example, but not just with them. Uh, and where there appear to be verifiable pieces of information that the child, it's always the child who remembers the past life initially, um, verifiable pieces of information. And, and then you can get a condition whereby gradually the apparently deceased personality that is being remembered or channeled by the child starts to take over more and more, and then they assume that identity. Mm. Now, disregarding whether there's any objective truth at all to that, it is still a replacement function. Yeah. Uh, so that's another example. Sometimes extreme examples help to illustrate things well, which is why I think I mentioned the Hitler one uh, and then multiple personality and then the possibility potentially of past life regression, hypnosis and, uh, and so forth. You get it with Buddhists as well. Any culture that believes in metempsychosis, the transmigration of the soul, is going to accept this as real. And therefore you're going to get a spike in cases because the culture says that it's okay and will reinforce it. And then of course the final example is just normal psychopathology where you can get a complex that literally gets too big for itself uh, and acquires too much power and may hijack instincts and archetypes or even the moral complex, the alter ego, to power itself through and then it starts to replace temporarily or completely the uh, previous ego structure and function. Yeah, of course, we will. I guess we can do something on past life regression. That's always great fun. There's, um, I always noticed that one of the most popular video game series ever is Assassin's Creed. And that's basically a past life regression thing. But it's based, it's meant to be like genetic memory. So there's someone, the, the general idea is there's like a dude and he goes into a machine and he's able to access the lives of his previous ancestors. And I do wonder if there could be an in, inheritability of memory or something in the yeah, collective it's... unconscious somewhere. But if it's specific to one individual, I don't think we have an epigenetic mechanism whereby that many generations, say, say going back, I don't know, twenty-five generations, thirty generations, to say William the Conqueror or something like that, that that could still be preserved in the genome. I've absolutely not. I've never seen evidence of that occurring. But something to consider. I guess. I think, I think it's an interesting point, and it's your it's your area of specialism. So I, I wouldn't, you know, um, even dream, so to speak, of trying to contradict you on that. Mm. What I will do, though, is <laughs> a few points from my own uh, perspective. Um, I got into past life regression in 1976 with mm-hmm. hypnosis, a long time ago. First got into it then. And it was a BBC documentary called More Lives Than One, the Arnold Bloxham tapes. Uh, Magnus Magnuson, you may remember him. He was a, he was a celebrity um, in the 70s and 80s. He's, he's gone now. He's, he's passed. But he wrote the book and he was the presenter mm. got the book here on the shelf mm-hmm. um in fact i read something from it as the eulogy for my mum's funeral at a christian mm-hmm. church uh, there's a quote in there from the bhagavad gita and the the christian minister actually came up and said that oh, was wonderful it was wonderful he didn't know it was hindu <laughs> <laughs> rather than uh, the christian he thought it was nice which was good mm. that's another story 
But the, um, the argument against inherited memory there is that several of these people who apparently under hypnosis produced uh, verifiable information took or experienced this person's life all the way up to death, including death, and you cannot genetically pass on your yeah, own death. Yeah, that, that's, that's the tricky point. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a sticking point with that. So it's hard to know. It's, it's hard to know. I've experienced lots of things, some of which were clearly fantasies, just, just fantasies, um, and other things which clearly weren't. And the ones that weren't are interesting and are worthy of further analysis. And I think very often you get a category error where we, we tend to lump things together as if it's the same thing when really it's not. We're looking at different things. Yeah. So the fantasy thing is different completely from the things that can't be dismissed as fantasy. They're not the same thing at all. Yeah. So we have to use our power of discrimination and say, you know, let's separate that off and look at the anomalies because we will learn from anomalies. We won't learn from things we're already familiar with and can yeah. be dismissed. Yeah, well, Plato would probably agree with you in that particular sense, in terms of the soul moving between the two different... Yeah, it's it's definitely an incredibly strange one, because not even death, it would be after the point of reproduction, because you wouldn't have passed on your your genome and your epigenome, which is usually wiped in the most case anyway when you pass it on. But then at the yeah. same time, perhaps you could get these ideas through stories that maybe Papa told you when you're sitting on his knee. But at the same time, there's going to be a bloody good story, and it's got to be pretty precise. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the stories have resonance because there's a template to receive them. Yes, yes, certainly. And, and of, of course, um, we I, I've experienced mythological mo motifs. Uh, I had a friend yesterday who experienced a motif from the Fisher King, for example, the idea of himself getting hit in the groin that really resonated with him uh, i've had ones involving the decapitation motif which goes back to way way back into the ancients of Celtic world and, and, and whatever, whatever else. But when it actually becomes a past life, you know, that's when uh... yeah that, that's something different isn't it but they're probably all connected and with respect to epigenetics uh i i i do take your expertise and, and, and your training on that absolutely 100 percent is red but we're still left with trying to explain the collective unconscious yes and its yeah. contents being passed on genetically and stored genetically and then you have for example chickens uh, that have been raised for several generations in a battery environment and have never seen a hawk and then somebody's an experiment runs a stuffed hawk along a, a wire and they all freak out. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's an image which is stored genetically. It must be for all chickens, just as, mm -hmm. as it used to be said when I was young and, and uh, studying psychology that we have prepared and contra prepared learning. Mm -hmm. We're prepared allegedly to be afraid of spiders and snakes because of our remote ancestors' experience, probably pre-human as well. Yeah. We think that snakes have been around since the Cretaceous period and spiders for a lot longer than that. They're at least 300 million years old, spiders. Yeah. Um, that's stored within us as a, as a complete reaction to a sign stimulus in the environment. So some experiences are sustained beyond mere, gen mere epigenetics and are, are kept so that, that's something that, that, that's worth looking at yeah it's, the, uh, well, the, the, the best thing i can think of with that is that they are the collective unconscious is stored genetically so so mm -hmm. but but the genes which can code these networks 
perhaps you're producing an mRNA which has built into it two genes. One is the actual response that delivers to the actual organism itself, and another is an epigenetic regulator that matches, say, the alter ego. So you've got every time one of them is producing a gene, ego or alter ego, they're also simultaneously producing a similar gene which goes and represses or integrates the other one at the same. I don't know. There, there have to be lots of research really, on this. Really good model. Um, I, I would really like to see you develop that and writing. I, I definitely could. I definitely could hook up some of the old boys from from the lab. Uh, yeah, 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 I could. Let's go on to it. Yeah, yeah, something up. Okay, so uh, another point you've got here. This is a, this is a scary one. You said the collective shadow at its highest yeah. resolution, the archetypal shadow, is something yeah. far more potentially dangerous even than the personal shadow. As a collective yeah. system, its lowest resolution is at the level of any two-person social interaction. It then yes. rises in resolution according to the size of the socio-cultural system it represents until it yes. reaches the highest level of all as the shadow of humanity as a whole. Yes. Now, apart from that being the introduction to an epic Greek myth, perhaps you could bring that <laughs> to, to earth. What, what, what do you mean by the shadow of humanity as a whole? Well, let, let's go up the, the scale of uh, resolution uh, sure. for that. Uh, we can bring it right down that collective means more than one. So within the biopsychosocial model that we use, that's a dyadic or two-person interaction, and that can be a relationship with your significant other, mm -hmm. or any significant other, a, a friend. That relationship produces its own shadow, and it's collective because there's more than one person there. Mm -hmm. Now, it in includes the personal shadows of both people, and it includes the collective shadow at various levels of resolution that both those individuals have access to. But that's at a greater distance than simply the two-person interaction level of resolution so you can get say uh, say someone who is uh, attracted to someone through their shadow their repressed shadow to someone who acts it out you can get a friendship based on that difference mm. yeah and that then generates a whole field an informational field which is in effect a shadow that will contain the darkness of one and the lightness of the other mm. and they will compete for control and dominance that's it's a simple two-person interaction you then increase that and the, the potential for good and the potential for bad increases exponentially with each level of resolution up the, the, the social cultural uh, hierarchy. When you get to the top level, it's the most impersonal because it's, it's the most collective. Um, and it's also got the most negative potential in terms of pure, unadulterated, brutal instincts. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's when you get genocide uh, that's when you get that kind of thing. The kind of thing that Jordan Peterson would talk about, probably. Yep, makes sense. You know, he's certainly approaching that level. He's up in the stratosphere of the shadow at that level. You know, yes. Maybe not into outer space, so to speak, but he, he's up there. He's not in the big black yet. He's on his way when yeah. he's talking about gulags and, and, and things like that. Yes. Um, and, of course, because you can resolve up, you, you can also have that information flowing down. Now, usually for that to happen, you need a socio-cultural system which is corrupt that mm -hmm. will allow that to, to duck down into you. So totalitarianism, left or right, don't care, it's the same, uh, will, will, will produce that. The dark side of a religion will produce that because religions are extremely powerful in terms of their suggestion, yep. the capacity to suggest to people. Um, and as we know, uh, and again, controversial and apologies if I'm upsetting any Christians uh, that may be listening to this, um, Satan tends to get projected out onto people who aren't Christian. 
yeah, experienced that first, firsthand you. when I was speaking to to many, many, many. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to make a you know a distinction between Christian and Christian. If, if you see yeah. what I mean, it's like I'm with you. Like yeah. my 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 town growing up, they go to mass on a Sunday, and it's like that's basically yeah, it. Yeah. They're like we love Jesus. It's like great, wonderful. And but then the the type who would sell religion to me, for example, I would norm, just based on my personality, I would actually enjoy talking to them. I'd always, always be told stop because they're trying to sell you stuff. I'm like, no, 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 I, I want to talk to you. Like, you seem like a genuinely nice person, and they are until you scratch yeah. below the surface and you say no. Then yeah. all of a sudden, it's you've been yeah. corrupted. You're this. You're this. You're. I've got this loads and loads of times. So that would be illustrating what you're saying in terms of yeah. other bad, their shadow, yeah. other bad projection. Absolutely, yeah. And because it's set up to be a polarity, then it lends itself to that. That's not to say that Christians are bad. It's just that the system lends itself towards projection of the shadow onto people who, are, who they, can, they perceive as being the other and therefore not Christian. Now, an advantage monotheism has, and it's just to do with psychological hygiene and nothing to do with the objective truth of any religion, but the advantage of a, a, that monotheism has is that you can spread the crap out between the different deities and it's a lot easier then to face it in yourself because you can then see, for example, that the uh, the Olympian gods, the 12 main Olympian gods, all operate internally as complexes, as Jung called them, within your own psyche. And if you upset one, you can always be nice to another and you can kind of balance it out. And it also means that, that for the Greeks, for example, if they travel, they would interpret the local religion according to the religion they had, but they would accept it on equal terms. So in that sense, it's easier not to project the shadow, not to generate mass hate. But as soon as you get into a monotheism, whichever one it is, uh, there is a tendency in people who aren't very conscious yes. to start to, to chuck the hate out. That doesn't mean to say they all do. They don't. Obviously, Christianity is not like that, and it's not intended to be like that. But Christians are human as well, and they have yes. a shadow, and they're only too willing to chuck it around if they don't know what it is as much yeah. as anybody else that, that, that's a good qualifier i like that actually a good uh, disclaimer on that, that particular thing yeah okay uh, that makes a lot of sense i enjoy that uh so we've got here the next point i immediately see you've written dark side here so i get very very excited uh, within the psyche of an individual this is represented as the dark side of the self archetype remembering yeah. that the self archetype is grounded psychobiological or an organi organismic system than the psychodynamic identified by freudian theory as thanatos which is the opposite libido energy to eros leads an organism towards catabolic breakdown and eventual death this can be considered by this from the standpoint of the ego to be a kind of psychological entropy now, you, yeah. you got excited earlier about this idea of Thanatos and death and our impending doom. Perhaps you could uh, expand on that one then. Yeah, I mean, if we accept that lifespan development um, is for the whole of life and that life ends, Jung himself said the goal of life is death. And that, that's, that's hard to take on board at first, but it's a very simple statement. It has to be the case because that's the end point. And because he was very, very influenced by Greek philosophy, Plato and Aristotle, he was aware of the teleological principle, which is basically that the end is anticipated at the beginning. So from a genomic sense, death is anticipated at the moment of conception genetically. It's already pre-programmed in that we wind down. And this is not just um, 
biological it's also psychological and psychosocially as well as people age they change their um, investments of energy libido changes as well if you can become more conscious rather than less conscious as you age then your aging is different it's qualitatively different and one of the things that you will perceive is the role of Thanatos, which is this winding down and uh, dying, this entropy, which is basically intended to release your biology as, as energy back into the environment to be recycled. And the psyche will anticipate this as well. And it will begin to change the way, as you age, uh, the way you see things, unless, unless you have worked hard on yourself and you're in the process of individuating. At that point, you do stand a chance of living more consciously right up to the end and perhaps even beyond as young himself mm. particularly in um, the face-to-face -face interview in yeah yeah um, that, was, that was always a curious one we should perhaps discuss that but Thanatos appears in other forms as well i mean freud became interested in it because of what happened in the first world war and it was an attempt to try to understand why young men in particular were throwing themselves into machine guns and getting mowed down and he um, and others believe that there must be some kind of uh, force that was opposite to eros that was uh, leading people to do that and i do believe it's biologically programmed and for the reasons we discussed earlier that uh, you have to have a cadre of young men who are prepared to protect the group to protect mm -hmm. the reproductive identity of a group if not then you don't eliminate that drive, that reproductive drive, you simply become prey to another group that has a stronger, better articulated, more martial, if you like, more warrior-like uh, articulated reproductive drive. Uh, and I think that part of the dark side of what's going on now, and again, this is very controversial, what's going on in culture at the moment is that um, this so-called shit testing that goes on, uh, from women is is more biologically driven than they're accepting mm -hmm. if they can successfully neuter their own reproductive male population then they weren't worth breeding with anyway because they were able to be pushed to the point where they were just non you know they were in cells basically collectively across the whole culture yep what will, ha what will happen then is that they will just look around for another breeding population that will assert itself mm -hmm. and they'll find one and I'll say no more than that. Oh, I know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. So I don't want to get involved in the politics of it, but I am interested in the, the deep structure psychology of it. Yes, completely agreed. Politics is boring. Psychology is much more interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the acceptance of being uh, a whole generation of incels, if that acceptance occurs, is phallitos. So, So is this, just to bring up, well, maybe maybe I'm a sweetheart. I don't know. But I like the idea of death to be something in old age, preferably. Now, you, you mentioned, of course, that, uh, that, that, that this idea of Thanatos, you've had it in the context of the young man warrior, the will to yeah. throw themselves in front of yeah. those brand new guns, which had never been seen before in the trenches yeah. of World, World War One. But in yeah. old age, is it a case of when when you're ready, the psyche will go, okay, you're now ready. It will sort of gear you up to be ready. So example being a couple that dies of heartbreak. Say so one of them passes away, they're like 80. Yeah, because I, I, as far as I'm aware, they don't present with stress physiologically, at least no more than, say, me or you, but they sort of just go, 
time to go. Bye. Is that sort of the same, this, the psyche just shutting things down? Yeah, I'll give you another um, case example. Um, I knew someone from 1966. I, I won't mention his name. Some people, if, if they know me and hear this, will know who I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about, which is why I shouldn't mention uh, the chap's name. He was older than me, and he was very influential in my life and in my brother's life and in our peer group, uh, someone we, we would look up to. At age 11, his mother died, and he was Roman Catholic, this guy, and he stood at his mother's graveside. He was, I say he was Catholic, and he said to the priest, I no longer believe in God because you've taken my mum, and I'll tell you now, I will die on New Year's Day 2000. He made that prediction. Well, he was hugely influential in my life. I met him many, many years later and he had cancer. And he, uh, he came to us for treatment, or you know, not cancer treatment, but psychological support. And because I knew him and I respected him and he'd been hugely influential in, in my background, I um, contacted, I won't say who it was. You do know who it was. I contacted someone who I thought could give me advice yep. to see if it would be possible to um, use a psychological model to access what was going on with respect to the cancer uh, and see if we could help him at whatever level, whether that was pain relief or if it were possible to. And I, I communicated with, with this person and I got some advice and, and uh, I tried to implement it. And at first it seemed to be working. It seemed to be having some effect. But then he told me, he told me that he'd set his clock. And I realized that that was part of his personal myth and that it was tied into Thanatos and that he was determined to go and it, would be, it was going to happen. Yeah. And anyway, sure enough, just after midnight, as the new millennium broke, he passed away. As he predicted aged 11. So there was Thanatos, there was Thanatos tied into his personal myth, and there was his determination on religious grounds, his defiance, as he saw it, of the faith that he was brought up in, um, yeah. to prove that he was that powerful and that he could he could throw the throw the switch and die, and he did. Uh, and yeah. that was shocking. You know, I mean I, I've seen it happen probably three times. Uh, one was in the, the case of an anorexic um, who had also decided when she was going to go and um, her psyche crossed the psychoid boundary became the issue became so organic there was no way of getting getting back I mean I've worked with people with eating disorders lots of them uh, people who have too much weight people who have not enough weight the whole bandwidth but this particular uh, girl was intent on destroying herself and she did. And again, that, that was Thanatos. That was a manifestation of psychobiological entropy that went up the whole, the whole nine yards. Very, very distressing. So would these uh, manifestations, both of them you brought up, would they be, would you say they were pathological, especially your friend who decided to set his own clock? Because you mentioned it's part of his personal myth. Where, yeah. Where's the boundary between it's pathological to set your own clock and it just is, you know? Well, yeah, it, it can become a value judgment, can't it? To say, you know, that that was right or wrong either way to, to do that. Um, he was a very creative man and he was a very sort of charismatic, outgoing personality, very hermetic, a bit yeah. of a trick, 
well known for that. He was, he was a bit of a trickster. You could argue perhaps that, that his trickster function turned on him. And whereas he thought that it was a good thing to destroy himself, it wasn't perhaps, it certainly wasn't for his family, for his wife and for his, for his children and for the people who loved him. Yeah. Uh, but, but he believed he was in control and in a way he was, but perhaps he also he wasn't. And the trickster part of him was part of his fanatos. Yeah. I can do this. I'm going to spice everyone. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. I don't want to make a, a moralistic judgment on him because I knew him personally and knew his family. But it was very marked that he was able to do that. He set his clock age 11 and he went out age 60. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, of, of course, it's not right in situations like that to give moral judgments. It's not your business. Yeah. But I was wondering purely to say clinician's responsibility, you know, because I imagine that's probably a very, very difficult thing to do. Yeah, it, 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 it was. Um, it was difficult. Um, I'm still trying to understand it. Yeah. yeah. And it's wider ramifications. But I mentioned it because of uh, what you said about the role of that. You know, and if yeah. you want an example, that's an example of it. Yeah, and that's a, that's a good example, I guess. Man, oh man, oh man. Well, I guess, I guess we'll close with this final point here involving yep. uh, Thanatos once again. You've said here that the negative pole of the collective shadow has massive suggestive power and can, yeah. through the expression of Thanatos, which by the way is Thanos from the Marvel series, if people recognise that particular name, right. lead whole cultures and civilizations to destruction. So you've yep. talked about the individual setting their own clock or deliberately driving themselves, you know, the will to death. Yeah. How is this going to work on a civilization front? Well, again, I would say the clearest example uh, for me, uh, the simplest one, as well as being clear, would be Hitler. Yeah. Uh, and his uh, personal myth, which was not personal, it was collective. And there is a difference. If you internalize a collective myth, it is not your personal myth. That's, yeah. That's really important. We, do, we do try and do this. And, and um, when we discuss the personal myth on a podcast, I think it be, would be useful to, to, to go through this. If you identify with something like he did, which is basically the myth of Wotan and the Twilight of the Gods, Gotadamarung and all the rest of it, he had set his clock for destruction, but not just personally, but for his entire nation. He was going to take everybody down with him, and he did. He, he lived it out to the end. The problem was it was a collective myth. It wasn't his. He, di he didn't individuate in the right way. He individuated by assimilation of a collective myth, which was destructive. And identified with it, yeah. But he, he, you know, he led to the death of perhaps sixty million people. That's not a good way to individuate. Yeah, I agree. That, I agree. That's an obvious way of doing it. Uh, a less obvious way would be. Um, I'm going to get into tricky waters here if I push this, but our present Do it. culture. Do it. Our, our present culture is in a tailspin of self-destruction. Yeah. With all the post hoc justifications for why it's doing things, which are act actually negative, and they're leading towards Thanatos, definitely. Yeah. And I, I probably don't have to go into any kind of clear, you know. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the audience, at least from yeah, experience, it, it, all, it's, all it's the guys in the Discord are anyway, they're very much familiar with the culture war and indeed the. Uh, the uh, well, it's states. a real thing, and I'm not making yeah. a political interpretation of that. I'm just trying to be as objective as I can and say that 
when I was young, that wasn't there, but it wasn't there probably because we were still in the, the after effects of the, the two world wars. My parents in the second world war, my, my grandparents in the first world war, and they wanted to put things right. They wanted to have a health service. They wanted to have a free education for all. And we benefited from that. And we, we got the sixties, we got the hippies. Uh, and that was a mistake, sadly, because it was too one-sided. Um, so my generation uh, was gifted things and it mishandled them out of ignorance. Uh, and because of the one-sidedness of what's gone before, we created our own one-sidedness. And now we have this, which is not an equilibrium point. It is not. We are definitely moving towards a, a state of Thanatos. It can be uh, averted. I think Jordan Peterson's popularity is part of that. Yep, certainly. Uh, without a doubt. Potentially, the, the, negative, the clearest negative of Jordan Peterson is that he is an individual and he is not a collective. And in effect, he's been channeling forces which are far bigger than him. Mm -hmm. And um, it's going to erode him. Mm -hmm. Well, you can see the evidence of that. Of course, don't yeah. need to be sen um, insensitive on the particular subject, but you can track. I mean, the watershed moment is obviously when he stood up for free speech, Bill C-16. Absolutely. It took the world by storm. You know, yeah. even he was completely surprised. He's like, well, what? And then I've spoken to people before. It's like as if the collective unconscious chose him. Right. And it's like, yeah. but, but track the actual t trajectory of what's happened to him as an individual. The, like, the, the mm. problem with that is this uh, people who do that usually get sacrificed. Yep. To a greater or lesser extent. Back in the 80s, when Ronald Reagan was forcing the Star Wars program against Russia it, with a view to bringing the Berlin Wall down, um, I made a prediction amongst some of my colleagues that Gorbachev would be sacrificed, at least politically. He wouldn't survive it politically uh, because he was incarnating the change on that side of the Berlin Wall, you know, uh, in, in the Soviet Union, and he couldn't survive it. Yeah, he was good. He was being a good man. And everyone's saying, no, he's good. He's good. He'd be like a Jesus, a, a Russian. No, no, it's not going to happen. He, he, he will be sacrificed and there will be a period of turmoil and something else will take his place. Uh, similar thing with Hong Kong and uh, Hong Kong being returned back to China. Um, you could easily see the psychedelics were going on there. So it's the same process at a different scale of resolution. But where you get an individual like Jordan Peterson, who didn't have the backing of the Soviet Union behind him, uh, for example, he's going to suffer far more than even Gorbachev did. He got off quite lightly for what he did, which was breaking the old system. Um, Jordan Peterson uh, became very, very popular uh, through the Internet, which didn't exist in the 80s, of course. And he channeled forces that are bigger than him far bigger and he's probably paying the price yeah yeah well um well i guess that sort of uh closes off the idea of thanatos and it closes off the idea of all these different bullet points that you've given which of course people can get in the free manual as i've said earlier on by clicking the link in the description down below but as a general summary in terms of integrating the shadow i think we've taken a very different approach today to what i guess yes. everybody else seems to be doing where it's rather than leaving it up in the air and more of a woo-woo thing. If you want to integrate the shadow, you've got to stare at the evil Adolf Hitler inside of you, or you've got to do shadow work and sit there and feel urges within you. It's more of a case of these are biological systems that exist at yeah. the genetic level. We've covered, of course, yes. the model between the, the ego, the alter ego, and the moral complex and how they're all interacting with each other. And then the yeah. idea with integrating the shadow, in short, is you can't integrate the shadow. 
as a structure because it is a genetic thing and it exists for a biological purpose like you cannot integrate the hand you cannot integrate the eye it's just not a possible thing to do but you can through your own journey your own development your own raising of your own consciousness sit there in a dialectic between the alter ego and the moral complex to see what they're trying to say and in real time every moment that passes these things are going to update and exchange information or repress each other or whatever else and it's your job as the executive function the ego to enter into a dialogue whenever you feel yourself being imbalanced whenever you feel yourself suffering whenever you feel you are dysregulated whenever things around you are dysregulated that is an opportunity for real time moment to moment shadow integration if if that's a fair summary steve absolutely yeah it's not your enemy it can become your enemy but that's because you're one-sided if it was literally an enemy within then people would be being destroyed by it all the time i mean literally taken out biologically they would Mm. cease to exist it would kill them Uh, it doesn't it makes you suffer in an effort uh, for you to to compensate for your own one-sidedness it's so it's really part of a healthy system if it appears to be that dangerous and that black and it's your personal shadow it's because you've made it that way yeah yeah and i, I guess the main the main trait for this type of thing i mean you mentioned patience before but reflexivity yeah. and the ability yeah, to as we said earlier the unexamined life is not worth living Absolutely. perhaps you just have a more examined life and in areas in which yeah, I think my own personal story sort of mirrors that quite nicely in terms of I thought I was being, I thought I was driving myself towards things I wanted because yeah. I wanted to be a particular person. Turns out both of those were wrong. I didn't want any of the things I was trying to build and I didn't want to be the person who I was trying to be because it was yeah. all it was all these ego aligned complexes, which it's all involved within shadow in- integration. So, of yeah. course, the, the whole idea, as with Young to Live By, is become who you are. And that is the, the objective purpose yeah. of shadow. Absolutely. In- don't copy Young, don't copy Jordan Peterson, don't copy you, don't copy me, don't copy anyone, be you. That's the, that's the goal. That's the goal of your own life is to become yourself. Perfect. If you've got any other closing comments, if not, I will, uh, I'll close this yeah, up. Yeah, that's fine. Thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it. And it'd be great to see the guys on YouTube and Discord again soon. Thank you. Perfect. Absolutely, absolutely perfect. Of course, pick up your free guide of the Shadow Integration Manual. Perhaps but go back over this and make notes as you go along it. We've designed it to be the best possible resource we possibly could. So I really hope you guys enjoy it. And if you're interested, you can come into the Discord and you can chat to Steve or myself. Or indeed, there are loads of other bonuses that you can find, which we're both providing over on our Patreon page, such as a chat with Steve, chat with myself, asking us questions. Loads of stuff over there to create a nice young to live by family so that we can all individuate together. As paradoxical as that sounds, that's, of course, how (laughs) these things work. So once again, thank you, Steve. and Thank you, everybody else. Appreciate you. Thank you. Take care.